Isaiah 5, we're going to start in verse 1. We're putting these verses on the screen for you. And here it goes. Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So here it is, and I don't want to, <clears throat> to confuse you. It's a song, but it's a parable. So this song is going to be a parable. A parable is something that comes alongside a teaching. Para, along, uh, uh, aside, and bull, a story, it's par parabolos is where that comes from. It's, it's something that comes alongside a teaching. It's something you will understand so that you can understand something that you don't currently understand. That's why Jesus taught in parables, Isaiah is using a parable. This one happens to be framed or written as a song. Some of scripture is written as prayers, some as songs, some as dialogue, some as history, some as rhetoric, some as apocryphal. Some is wisdom. And so this happens to be a parable written as a song. It is Isaiah speaking, the prophet who wrote the book, and it is God's message to the people. So some agricultural basics. If you've never grown a garden, or for sure, you've probably, you're probably, if you're live streaming today, you're probably not an agricultural farmer. You might be, that happens, but most of us don't do this for a living. This was an agrarian setting where everybody grew their own food or raised some of their own food or had that. And so just some basics. The idea here is that if you cultivate good ground and you plant good seed, you take care of that, then what you desire is a crop, an outcome, a good harvest. And so that's the idea today, is that if you plant good seed, if you take care of the ground, you make it good ground, your outcome should be a good harvest. Now, we know that we can do everything we can in the ground, and we can, we can have a good seed, but really, it's only God that causes the growth. But as we look at this parable, it's the things that we do. God is saying, now, haven't I done that? Now, it'll come up in the next verse. So verse 1, I'm going to start there again. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So there is the very fertile ground. He dug it, and he cleared it of stones, so God put in the work. He planted it with choice vine. There's the seed. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. There's protection. He hewed out a wine vat. That's his desire in the future. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So here's what we have. Now, the idea about a vineyard could be just to grow grapes. But God has said, in the midst of it, I, plant, I put a wine vat. And so the idea is God has done everything. He has cultivated fertile ground. He's put in good seed. He's put protection and provision around it. He's even given it a vision. Here's what you will become. When you grow good grapes, you will become a good wine. There's an outcome. There's the vision. This is what God desires, what God is doing. Again, this is a parable. We understand the growth. We understand the planting. We understand the vision of where it could be. And God says, here's what it is. I planted. I did. I, I worked. I cared. But instead of yielding grapes, what I got was wild grapes. Wild grapes are bitter grapes, unusable grapes. So instead of something that you could eat or that you could turn into wine, they're bitter, unusable grapes. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. This is Isaiah speaking, but he's really speaking on behalf of God. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked to it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So the question is, was there anything God or did not, God did not do that the people needed? 
the question could be asked today, has God not provided everything for the church to be fully devoted to Him, right? Has God done everything we need? Or if you're, you know, living in modern day, this is obviously almost three millennia ago, modern day, has Jesus not accomplished everything on our behalf? Has Jesus not put His Spirit in those of us who believe? Has God not done everything we need? And if so, why might the yield be bitter grapes, right? So why instead of good grapes producing good wine, do we get wild grapes, bitter and unusable? Verse 5, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard, God says. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll remove its protection. It'll be destroyed, right? I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Verse 6, I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. No more protection or hedge around it, right? No more care, no pruning, no, no discipline anymore, right? No more care for it, no more making it better. No more provision by rain or clouds, no more watering this. And he says that the outcome will be no more vineyard, that the grapes will be destroyed, that the outcome will be no more vineyard. So modern Christians, how do we hear this today? When we hear of God's discipline, removing protection and provision, here's a question I want to ask you. Do we respond by seeking God in repentance or simply by blaming others? This coronavirus season has given us a unique window into the beliefs of Christians and churches. Uh, and one, everybody is online now, so you get to see a lot more. But two, people have, uh, and they seem to have more time. I don't know, I've, I've never been busier, but maybe you have more time. And, and, and God forbid, I hope you haven't lost your job, and then that's why you have time, so I don't want to make light of it. But people on social media have become very active, and we've begun to see what people believe. People are kind of coming out of the woodworks with their beliefs on things. And, and what we see here is rather than taking a circumstance, taking something that's taking place in our lives, like the coronavirus, and rather than seeing it as a season where the church can repent and return to God, draw nearer to God, what we often see is the church blaming other people. Oh, it's this, or this person should have acted sooner, shouldn't have acted at all. Oh, this is fake. Oh, these people are conspiring together. This is all, a or this, or that. What we see, and this is, uh, again, Christians, those who profess to follow Jesus, what we see is their beliefs. We see them blaming everyone else. When we have an opportunity right now to take stock of who we are as the church and as Christians to really kind of do an assessment of our own lives, our own churches, our own faith, what we see is people blaming everyone else. Now, I'm not laying the blame of a virus at the foot of the church, but if we take some of the lessons learned, when God says, listen, when my people wander away, when they are no longer faithful to me, I will slowly lift my hand off of them. My blessing, my protection, my provision will come off of them. We can see that. Like, it's not like God is protecting the church right now and no one in the church is getting sick. Now, I'm really grateful at Generations, we know people, we have people here in Generations who know people who have gotten the virus, who have died from the virus. We have that. We're, we're caring for the grief of people, but so far, no one in Generations Church has tested positive that I know of. And so, again, I'm not suggesting it's because God is protecting us or because God is not protecting us. I'm saying there's a lesson we can learn. There's a story 
that we can press into that God really did do, really to God's people, and we can ask ourselves, where do we find ourselves in the story? Christians, if you find yourself in the story always on the right side of things, I would suggest reading it differently. I would suggest that we read ourselves into the wrong side of the story and let that speak louder to us. Again, Christians have posted all kinds of things, and I've watched as Christians have called our nation to repent, meaning culture and others, but not ourselves. And so I want to say this is for us. This is not for your neighbor who's a Buddhist or your neighbor who's an atheist, your family member who's new agey or whatever. I, I just know this is for us. This is written to the people of God about our faithfulness and obedience. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. That's both nations that are considered God's people. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. They failed God by lacking justice and righteousness. They were corrupt in their dealings, and they didn't care for others. Now, that should resonate with us. When we set out in our lives, and our lives look like just everybody else's around us, when we're chasing after college scholarships or you know, large retirements or better jobs or better titles or better whatever, when we're pursuing all the same things as the world, and I'm not knocking any of those things, by the way, but when that becomes our focus, when that becomes idolatry, we're doing the same thing as everybody else around us. When our house has to look better than our neighbor's house, we're pursuing the things of the world. Are we asking ourselves, are we pursuing what God would have pursue us? So the people of God, the vineyard parable calls us as God's people to judge our own faithfulness and obedience. Do we represent Jesus to the world as God calls us to? Let me keep that note on the screen for just a minute. Let me ask you this question. The vineyard parable calls us as God's people to judge ourselves, our own faithfulness and obedience. Now, a lot of people will hear that, and they'll stop there, and they'll say, okay, well, I'm doing what God has called me to do. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this. Okay, well, just hold that thought. Are we representing Christ to culture in the way Jesus would have us represent Christ to the world around us? Remember Jesus when he was betrayed. We just spent, you know, a week and a half ago, we just spent three nights talking about the week leading up to Jesus' death. When they accused him falsely, when they condemned him falsely, when they convicted him and beat him and crucified, did he fight back? No. When the people were enslaved in Egypt, we backed up all the way to the Passover not too long ago. Did God tell the people to rise up against, to protest, to stand up, to do this, to do that? Or did he say, wait here, I'm going to liberate you? What are Christians doing today? Let me ask you this, if you're doing what you think God has called you to, does that look more like our constitutional rights, or does that more, look more like our witness to the world as Scripture calls us to? Now bear in mind, I love that we live in a nation that gives us rights, that we have a voice, that we have a protest. I get that. But disobeying is not protest, speaking is protest. Disobeying is disobedience. Read 1 Corinthians, read Hebrews, read Romans 13.1. That we are called to be an obedient people because we represent Christ to culture. You can disagree with what our government is doing and you can still be obedient. The only time we see people in Scripture go against that. Daniel's a great example. 
is they will be obedient and obedient and obedient until we are asked to not worship God. And that doesn't mean gather in a church. That means deny God and worship someone else. Nobody's asking us to do that yet. And if that happens, I'll be the first one. I'll be the first one to bang the gong. But are we a people obedient enough to represent Christ to our culture, or are we just doing what we think is right or wrong? Verse 8, woe to those who join house to house. Let me just tell you this. A woe is a great sorrow or distress that is coming. It's a warning of what is to come because of their sin. Their sin, not the world around them. The people of God's sin is causing them great sorrow, distress. Woes are coming. Here's a series of them in this message. Verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Here's the first woe. It's aggressive greed at the cost of the poor. Listen closely. Woe to those who join house to house and add field and field until there is no more room. When your collection, your consumption of things, hoarders at Costco, toilet paper, right? right? When your consumption, your collection of things causes pain and, and suffering on others, right? When your accumulation of wealth is at the cost of other people, then God is saying, listen, you've shifted your focus caring more about this than to caring what I called you to, which is justice, which is care for people. I'll put it up on the screen. Here's the way I put it. Greed and injustice. When people focus on accumulation of wealth, they lose focus on God. That's just true. Jesus said it, right? You can't serve God and money, right? You will love one and hate the other. You can't do both. You can have money and be a faithful Christian, but you can't chase it. When people focus on accumulation of wealth, they lose focus on God. When they allow their greed to hurt the poor and the needy, they incur God's wrath. There's a difference. When you are just losing focus, when you're shifting, when you're dwelling too much on some things, God will discipline, God will call you back, God will call you to a place that is best for you. But when you begin to do that so much that it, that it causes harm, or injustice, when it affects the poor and the marginalized, God says, that's when you incur my wrath, right? A problem in America today, a problem in our, in our cultural setting is we're so politically divided. There's two teams, and there are Christians in both teams who profoundly say, you can be a Christian and be on this team, but you can't be a Christian and be on this team. And they both say it about each other. The problem is we think either one of those teams represent Jesus, right? And so sometimes some Christians have a big desire to care for the poor, to care for the needy, and some others don't. And they'll, they'll shroud that in other things. But God is saying, I need you to care for people in need. I'll tell you, Generations Church has been incredible in this season. It was been five weeks, six weeks. We went all digital on March 14th. And so from then to now, it's been a month, uh, we have told everybody, if you have a need, please contact us. I'll say this, so far there's not been a need we've, been, we've not been able to meet, that our church has risen to the challenge and we've been able to care for people. So the, so the message goes to you, the extension goes to you. If there's a need that you have, please tell us. We will do what we can to try and care for you and meet your need. As of yet, because of the generosity of people that call this church home, we've been able to. We want to care for people in need. The Bible calls us to. Not to judge them, figure out why they're in need, and tell them all this or that, just to care for people right now. 
That's not to be stupid. That's not to be, you know, not be good stewards of what God has given us. Just God has called us to care for people. Let that be our value and help them and figure out how we can care for them long term. Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses will be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Verse 10, for 10 acres of a vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Those are measurements and terms that we don't use anymore, but it's like this. Lots of land will produce very, very little. So here's the outcome of that woe. When you pursue greed and you allow it to affect the poor and the marginalized, when you do something, your pursuit of wealth is so much that you're unwilling to care for others or that you step over others to get there. That woe comes with an outcome, and the outcome is this, that they will become, or if that's us, we will become the poor that we oppress. Many houses will be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have a lyre and a harp, a tambourine and a flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Two of the woes that we're going to talk about today really struck me. They struck me the first time when we did this message uh, a year ago, when we were just opening up the book of Isaiah. And I read through them and, and did a, a new series of notes, and these two things stand prominent to me. Here's our second woe. It's the love of sin and the distance of worship. So there's, it's one thing to sin. It's another to sin and be distant from worship. So here's what he says. They rise early in the morning for sin, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. People will get up early. They will sacrifice. They will give to go out and do things of the world. Now, I want to I step out of just sin because it starts with get up early, rise early to drink. But then it talks about partying, having fun, not partying in the sinful sense, celebrating, gathering. Think birthday party or anniversary or something. It's, it, it moves into that kind of thing. But it says people love to gather and celebrate, but they don't love to gather and celebrate God. That's the second woe, that we will sacrifice and give. We will rise early to go out and do a hobby. We will get up and we will give of ourselves to go out and play a sport. We will carve out space so we can watch games on TV or participate in teams, but we won't give the same level of sacrifice to gathering for worship. Church, you got to hear this, that people will sacrifice more for things of this world. Here's, I put it in, uh, I'll give it to you, let me read the verse 13 first. Verse 13 says, therefore my people will go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men will go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore my people will lack knowledge. They will not know how to pursue me because they've given their heart to other places. Even hobbies, even good things, even celebrating God's creation, the outdoors, the ocean, whatever, even good things that God created can become idols when they are pursued in a way that you would prefer to do that than gather with other believers and sing songs of worship to God. Now, you can take issue with that, but that's what he says, that you would enjoy the gathering of people this way but not in ways that glorify me. So here's a note for you. Valuing flesh over spirit. Finding enjoyment in the world. Hobby, sports, sin, anything. 
and not in corporate worship shows our true distance from God. Broken expressions of life, and that's all we have in this world. We are broken. The world is broken. We live under sin. This isn't the world God created. This is the world we messed up. Broken expressions of life cannot compare to corporate moments of grace, and they push us further away from God. Here's what I've noticed in this season of social distancing. For me, for our elders, one of the first things we started talking about was the lack of ability to do communion, and that there isn't really a good way for the way that we're given, the things that we're told about communion, that it should be gathered, it should be in the context of teaching, it should be served by our elders and our leaders, that we should care for our church in that way, that people should have a contemplative time of reflection and repentance and doing business with God, if you will. And then coming forward and taking it with right hearts. And there's no way we can do that at home. I can tell you to bring a cup of juice and a cracker, but it doesn't feel like a sacrament that way. So our elders have lamented over, how do we do this? There are people that want to be baptized. We, we want to do this. How do we do this and honor social distancing? So if this goes on for a year, we're going to have to find out ways. If this stops in a month, great. But we've lamented the loss of the sacraments, the, the places where we have moments and, and where heaven and earth collide. Sadly, many Christians don't miss it or understand it or value it. That our gathered moments are a, a, a means of grace to the people that are gathered time when we're here and we hear God proclaim his word and we worship together, there's something distinct and different. I am grateful for online services, but it can't replace what we do in person. It can't be everything we do. And so I long for the time we can gather back together, we can take communion once again, we can baptize those who have come to faith over the last couple months, few months. I look forward to that. The second woe is for people who would rather be doing other things than gathering as the church. Verse 14, therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. So understand, Sheol is the grave. It's the Hebrew term for the, the temporal space between death and judgment, that temporal time between when we die and we enter into eternity, right or wrong, however it goes, it's that space. It's the grave. And God says, I will expand the grave because of the things that you're doing. Now, again, we're not trying to make this a parallel, a one-to-one, -one, what God is doing there for what God is doing globally right now. But just take the truths from that and add them to this. Like, is God going to be more engaged with his church if we're a faithful church or less engaged with his church if he's waiting for us to return? We've got to ask those questions. We've got to ask about our witness to the world, not our own personal desires. We've got to ask about our faithfulness to God's word, even when it's inconvenient, especially when it's inconvenient. We've got to be a faithful people. God says the further away that you get, the more distant that you get, the more you walk, run headlong into things that are not of me, that are not my best for you, the grave gets bigger and bigger. Isaiah 15, uh, 5.15 says this, Man is humbled and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. These are the words that God keeps calling us to. Hear this. Verse 17, Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, 
and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. No matter how tough, no matter how convicting, no matter how deep or harsh or hard a passage is, and Isaiah can get after it. No matter how much, every passage points to hope in the gospel. There is no message inside a Christian church where we just get heavy on sin and we never give daylight, we never give hope, we never give a time for redemption and repentance. You see, the gospel is that God has created us and loves us and designed us. He knows how we live best. But all of us have sinned. Just all of us have chosen to live our own way instead of what God has called us to. All of us, the church, all of us continue to choose our own way at times. Sometimes blindly and hard-heartedly thinking we might be pleasing to God. Remember, last week, Saul was murdering Christians thinking he was pleasing God. That's how deep and hard-hearted sin can be. But even in that, God loved us so much that Jesus entered into human history. God in human flesh came to live the life that we are called to live, where we have failed, he has succeeded, to die the death we deserve, but he didn't, to take that in our place, to be buried in Sheol, the grave for us, so that our forgiveness could be complete, and then raising from the dead, as we talked about last Sunday, as we talk about every Sunday. Because in Christ's new life, we have new life. And so in Christ, we get to, we get to approach Christ and say, listen, I, I am a part of that sin. I am a part of the brokenness of the world. And Jesus, I need your blood to cover my sin. I need your death to take my place. And I want your resurrection to give me new life. And in that, Jesus is faithful. He forgives our sin. He gives us new life. He fills us with his spirit. He calls us to a purpose. We're going to talk about this tonight in our rooted launch, that every one of us have a purpose in God. Many never fulfill it. How do we go and live the way God has created us to live in Christ, doing what Jesus has created us to do in him? How do we pursue that? But that's the gospel, that we get a chance to do that. I am not defined by my past. I am not defined by the drug addict and the gang member and the convict. I'm not defined by that, or I wouldn't be here. New life is the gospel. Saul becomes Paul, an early church planter, the most prominent early church Christian, second only probably to Jesus, maybe Peter. He goes on and becomes that because God changes lives. Inside of Christ, life is redeemed and transformed. That's the gospel message. Isaiah, in his first chapter, says this, "'Come now, let us reason together,' says the Lord. "'Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are like red like crimson, but they shall become like wool. God says this, come, let's talk. Yeah, God's always going to be right, by the way. Let us reason together. Let me, let me lovingly show you where you're off track. And though your sins are red, I will wash them. I will bleach them. I will cleanse you. I will make you white as snow. That's the gospel message. If you want to know more about that, you're live streaming with us today, please message me, message the church. We will talk to you about Jesus. We want nothing more than to talk to you about Jesus. Back in Isaiah, verse 18, here it is. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the, holy, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. This is the third woe where people mock God. 
Kind of probably starts out with, well, like, if God is real, let him heal coronavirus. And then it turns into, see, your God is false, your God is fake, he did nothing, you're a Christian, you still died. We've even heard those stories and seen articles like that online, mocking God. But this is not about the world, this is about Christians who mock God. Beware of what you speak and what you say about God. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Earlier I said there are two woes that stand out. The first one stood out. This is the most pronounced one in our culture today. The fourth row is redefining truth. When we define truth that God has given us in our way and we call evil good and good evil, I'll put this on the screen for you. We have redefined things God clearly defined long ago, what marriage, sexuality, gender, and even life are. Even today, we decide what truth we want to obey based on convenience and preference, not on Scripture. The reason the church is going in so many different directions is because people obey what they want to obey and not other things. Because people pick and choose which pieces of Scripture they will be obedient to. We have redefined what life is. Is life when a baby is born and takes his first breath and cries, or is it upon conception? We've redefined marriage that God created, gender that God created. Our world has redefined things, and the church is not exempt. The church has been fully engaged in many of those conversations. And today, even if you're maybe on the right side of some of those things, or on the, and I don't mean right, but on God's definition of some of those things, hear this, we all pick and choose what we want to obey based on our wants and our convenience. We should all hear that one. Verse 20, uh, 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. So the fifth woe is human arrogance. Today, everyone online is an expert in epidemiology, economics, and pandemic, choosing what to obey rather than obeying Scripture's call to submit to authority so that our witness to the world is good. Everyone online with a social media account has become an expert, passing on articles, quotes, things, half of them fake, and the other half of them questionable. Rather than trying to figure out what we think is right, and even though we're not an expert, putting out what we say is correct, what we say doesn't matter. What does God say? God calls us to live in a particular way so that his name is made great, so that Jesus is put forth to culture in a way that people want to know more about him. That's our job, not fixing coronavirus, not fixing anything, not even fixing our political system. As, as Americans, as people in the U.S., we have a, an opportunity, we have a right, we have a privilege to engage in those things. We get to vote, we get to speak, we do that. But hear me when I say this, when we leave our speaking and we move into action, our action must reflect Christ, and our speech must reflect Christ at all times. That's where the church is struggling today. This woe hits us where we live. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. The fifth woe is systemic corruption. It's not so much about drinking that it starts out with, it's about the impact of culture, corruption. Moral, judicial corruption, corruption in our judicial system, in politics, in media, and let me suggest corruption in the church. Culture isn't the only thing that sin is effective. We're putting this on the screen for you. The church has become a culture of its own, defined more by our national rules and politics than by scripture. And that's to people on both sides of the aisle, to all perspectives. When we allow anything but the truth of God to shape our church, 
We've left what God has called us to do. God is calling his people everywhere to repent and to return to him. In this season, let that be a call for us. God is calling us to repent and to return as a church. Let the nation be what it is because they will see us and they will pursue the same thing. Don't look outward, look inward. Let our hearts be changed. Let our lives be changed and let the world see that. Let us lead by example, not by pointing fingers and throwing God's truth at people who don't even believe in God. Consider that, church. Verse 24, and I'll close with this. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as the dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. Notice the move to they. People that do this. But you, you, the listener, you, the believer, you, the follower, have an opportunity. He says, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's they. It doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be us. That can be those who choose to, but it doesn't have to be you and I. We have the moment to return. We have the moment to lay down anything that is unpleasing to God. I want to close with two things. I want to do one recap of Isaiah, where we've been, and two, what is for us today? So the first one, recapping Isaiah. The message to the people of God almost 3,000 years ago is that the main problem they're having, they have allowed the things of this world to define their culture even though they profess a faith in God. They have allowed the things of this world. Main problem in the church today, main problem 3,000 years ago, 2,800 years ago, 2,700 years ago, 2,000 years ago, you name it is allowing everything but God to define who we are as the people of faith. That was the message to the people 2,800 years ago when Isaiah began to speak. Hey, listen, you've let culture shape you instead of letting God shape you. Now, Isaiah is going to continue to call them to return. That we'll see in the coming days. For us, a message to the American church. We have a history of being founded by a people of faith. Don't let anyone tell you any different. They were all flawed people. They believed some different things, but we were founded by a people of faith, many of them fleeing religious persecution. So we were founded on principles of faith, but we have fallen deeply into sin and away from our creator. Isaiah's message is for all generations, repent of sin, repent of culture, repent of self, surrender to Jesus. Repent of sin, repent of culture, Repent of self, return to Jesus, surrender to Jesus. I pray those words for you today. May you leave everything that is not of Jesus behind. May you know the love of God that causes us, the kindness of the Lord who causes us to come to him. That's what Romans 2 teaches us. The kindness of God leads a man towards repentance. Let God's love be what drives you today, not a fear. We don't need to be a people of fear. We are a people of love. God loves you and he wants the best for you. He is calling you out of what is not best. If you're listening today and you would not identify yourself as a follower of Jesus or even a person who believes in God, the message is for you as well. Let God speak. Let his love speak to you. Let his love win your heart over. The questions you have, they'll be answered in time. Let this message call us to being who God has created us to be. Let us look at ourselves as witnesses to the world, not owners of independence and self. That is sin. The other is Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. 
You denied self. You denied who your de- you laid down your divinity. Philippians tells us that you, you humbled yourself and became flesh from, from God in heaven, divine, fully divine, fully God, fully all that we can even imagine and more. And you limited that to flesh. That you denied yourself so that you could enter into our story. Then you call us to replicate that. You empower us to deny ourselves and enter into the story of the world around us. We will only ever be your witness, a right witness for you, when we lay down ourselves and we pick up our cross and follow you. Jesus, inside of you is new life. And that new life comes with laying down ourselves and pursuing you wholly and completely. By the power of your spirit at work in our lives through, the, through what you accomplished in the gospel. We have the ability now to be a people that are different. To be a people that are redeemed to be a people that are more about you, you on the throne, not me. You on the throne, not ourselves, not our culture, not our world, not our nation. And let us do that so that others might see you rightly. Let justice and righteousness be our markings. Jesus, we love you. You entered into our story. We love you. We want to be that for others. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.